Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Matt on, who's a professional cyclist, among other things. Hi, Matt. Good morning. How are you guys? All right. All good. A nice, nice Monday morning. Get started with the podcast. Indeed. I've got a coffee to hand in my little podcast esports studio den. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to this. It should be quite interesting. It's normally me doing this. Um, so to be on the receiving end um, should be quite good fun. So professional cycling, how did that come about? Um, professional cycling for me, um, it's, I mean, how long do you want me to go on for? Cause it's been, a, <laughs> um, it's been an, int- my, my career uh, has been a really interesting one when, when I look back on it and uh, there's no way on earth as a young as a young man, as a kid, basically, I could have ever imagined how it would have turned out. Um, so in relation to wanting to be a pro cyclist, I guess I've always been into sports. Um, my, I come from quite a sporting family. My father, um, who was was in the army, then moved into the police, but it's always very, very sporty. As always watching. As always, I always found myself as a, as a, as a kid, either getting up really early to go to a, a time trial in the morning. Like we, we, when time trials used to start at like 7am when, when a roads were really quiet in the UK in the 1970s. So, and I didn't really understand what was going on. So I'd be sat in the boot of a car drinking coffee from a flask and sandwiches, wondering why my dad was riding on his own up and down a dual carriageway. That was my first real introduction into what the, what the sport was about. Um, and then I was always playing football. My dad was into rugby, football, boxing, all sorts. So sport was what it was all about. But as I got a little bit older, um, into my early teens, um, there was a lot of cycling on the TV. Um, when I say a lot of cycling on the TV, there was bits. It was the Tour de France occasionally and little bits that my dad would find. And there's always lots of cycling magazines around the house. And um, when we go on holiday, my dad would always take his bike. Um, so I was aware of it all of the time. Never really took a big interest until I guess I was about 15 um, when I became quite intrigued by it and um, saw the Tour de France on telly in 1985. Uh, when Bernard Hino won from memory. Um, <laughs> and then my dad said, how do you fancy going out to see the Tour de France? Um, uh, oh, wow. The, the following year. And, and that would have been 1986. So I was like, okay. So I started to ride my bike a little bit, not competitively at all. I hadn't joined a club or anything at that point. Um, but started to pick up and read my dad's mag- cycling magazines. Um, was still riding to school, but I used to ride. I was very good at cross-country running. And when I did ride my bike, even though it was just to school, it was still a couple of miles. It was quite a big hill on the way, on the way mm. back. Um, I remember just riding very, very hard all the time everywhere and didn't really take any, more, any other kind of mode of transport, just riding to my friend's houses back then. Always used to ride my bike, but always as quickly as I could. I just remember <laughs> every time I got on it, I would be riding hard. I don't know whether it was fast, but I was riding <laughs> <laughs> I was riding hard. So, and I used to quite enjoy that. And I think weirdly that kind of helped me with my kind of running while I was, um, you know, running at school. Anyway, um, 1986 came, um, we went to the Tour de France. Um, and I, that year on the lead up to the tour, I've been avidly reading cycling weekly magazine and the other magazines that were available at the time. Winning magazine was another one of the big kind of glossy magazines that, I used to kind of look at his pages and think, wow, this sport is, I used to actually look at it as that was quite exotic. You know, the imagery that you mm. get of, of pro cycling, even as a youngster, even like 30, 40 years ago, it was still an exotic sort of sport and it felt a long way away because there were, obviously internet was, wasn't a thing. Um, 
so it seemed and obviously i was very aware of of um, of europe and um the world in terms of its geography mm. and the, U- the uk being an island although we had a little bit of a cycling scene the fact that these pros were down riding in the dolomites and the alps and belgium it all seemed really far away to me mm. so um but I was, I was intrigued by it anyway we went to the tour um and we, we camped we had my little my dad's little Renault five and, and we camped um and we had such a good, a good time i took my both took our bikes and i, I rode up the col de glibier out d'huez etc um, and was just immersed in the kind of carnival of the tour. And, and my dad was explaining, trying to deconstruct it. And I was, I'd actually got a reasonable level of fitness and remember having to wait for my dad on several of the big climbs. And he was like, oh, blimey, you know, <laughs> you, you, we need to get you doing some racing. I was like, oh, really good racing. I said, yeah, go for it. Um, but the, the most significant point, I think, in relation to me wanting to be a professional cyclist, which I can actually remember and pinpoint, which I've told numerous people on many occasions mm. um, was I can't remember the stage number but it was the famous iconic stage and you guys I would imagine might know might know about it it's um it was the 1986 tour when Greg LeMond and Bernardino were riding up out the together mm. and they rode past me I took a photo and um, they rode to the top and it, it's one of the most iconic images of, of the tour tour's history really wow. and just just the experience of of being there at that particular time surrounded by like-minded people and fans and I thought I want to be a professional cyclist mm. um so I kind of set my mind to that really um the following year well I, I did a couple of races in 1986 badly as a, as a junior and in 1987 I was very small as a as a 16 year old I was really quite I wasn't very big at all. Then I had a bit of a growth spurt when I was 17, 18 and, and got to, to kind of regular size rather than being like fun size. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, uh, started to race in 1987 quite seriously on the domestic circuit and, and ended up winning some quite big races, the, the uh, Junior Tour of Wales being one of them. And then in 1988, huh? that continued, won the Junior Tour of Wales again, won the overall national series. Um, and in 1989, was one of the best amateurs around rode the world got picked for the world championships um wow. for great britain as a 19 year old um finished my first world in in france and then went to live and then got um i was offered a pro contract uh, very early actually 1990 uh, the winter of 1990 um 89 into 90 by a british pro team and i turned that down there's a team called per- percy bilton one of the biggest teams around in the UK at that particular point with a pretty big budget. Um, what I turned made that you down, turn to, it down? Uh, because I, it was actually, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about money actually on, on, on that side of things. I was offered 18, 18,000 pounds in 1990 right. to turn pro, which, which back then, now that's actually not, 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 not exactly, not, you know, it's not too bad. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah, but no, that, yeah. that was 30 years ago. That, that was the sort of money that was available on the domestic scene. But I wanted to um, ride abroad. I wanted to go to ACBB. I'd been offered a, a deal with an amateur team, ACBB, which was basically the French Foreign Legion. Um, oh, wow. Kind of team and riders of the calibre of Robert Miller, Sean Yates, uh, Alan Piper. Wow. Stephen, Stephen Roach had been in that team and I was asked to go there and ride for them. Um, so that's what I did. So I turned down £18,000 in 1990 to ride for £100 a month, um, <laughs> which... Which I don't regret. I mean, financially, I thought, mm, uh, looking back, it's like, Matt, was that really the right thing to do? <laughs> um, but so I was skint for a long time, but I had a blast, learned, you know, learned another language. Mm. Um, but turning pro didn't actually happen. Um, I spent 
1990, 1991 and 1992. One, one big race every year, as well as a few races when I came back uh, to the UK. Did the Olympics in 92. Um, and then in 1990, the, big, the end of 92, going into 93, the ACBB squad at that particular time were looking to turn professional. It was around the time when the d- cycling was kind of changing in, re- in relation to the kind of strata and the categories and when there was a real distinction in the, uh, in the 80s and the, and the first part of the 90s between professional and amateur. And then in the late 90s, there was no amateur class anymore. It was under 23s and in the elite category. So it was the blurring of lines. Okay. Um, so the, and, and teams, amateur teams changed because of that. They kind of just applied for a UCI license to be a pro team. And with the, I had a contract for 1993. Uh, the team was set up. I was offered a deal. I had my race program and I was going to be pro properly. And then, the, and then one of the big sponsors pulled out, as is oh. quite seemingly normal. Uh, so in the winter, so it left me without uh, a team. So I basically got a full-time job at Marks and Spencer's in 1993. Um, I got married, but I still continued to race um, at an amateur level in the UK. Mm. And, and, and there were still amateurs and pros in the UK at that point up to 1996 when I said that it changed. But the scene was really quite good. Um, you know, I rode the milk race again for the fourth time, rode another world championships. Um, still at the age of 23 with, that, with aspirations to turn professional. I really believed I was good enough and I was mm. performing internationally, winning international races. I was probably one of the best top, top kind of top three amateur riders in the UK um, consistently for several years. But um, getting a pro contract was, was really quite hard because I wasn't really racing quite as much for the GB team, although I was occasionally, but not all the time. And also I wanted to pay a mortgage. Yeah. So uh, you want a certain standard of living after yeah. living on hundred pound a month. Um, and then, but you need to, and it's a catch 22. You, you need the right kind of base. Um, you need a place to live. You want independence uh, to give you the right base to train. Um, and to, to get that, if you're not getting money from cycling, you've you got to have a job. So I, I learned very, very quickly to balance work and cycling. That, that must have been a big, quite a big blow to you at, at that age to, you know, be forging forwards and going for a, a pro career in it to then have the sponsor fall out. And did it take you a little while to sort of, you know, compose yourself? Yeah, it did a little bit. It was, it was quite a blow. Um, I was bitterly disappointed, but I had to completely recalibrate. Um, but I still knew at that point, coming into the winter of, well, coming into 1993, I'd just turned 23, so I was still really young. Um, and that year I had another really good year. I won a, I won a big British classic race called Tour of the Peak, which is, doesn't, it's no longer around, but it's a, a race that went out when it's pass up in, up, in, up in Derbyshire. A beautiful race with a real heritage. I won that, went to the World Championships again in Norway. Um, finished in the top, I think it's 24th, I think, in the world, when Jan Ulrich won the amateurs and Armstrong won the pros. So you can oh, wow. tell the kind of names that were going on around. So I was, I was riding really strongly. Um, but the pro contract sadly didn't come um and then 1995 came and it was a really big year i I was just getting stronger i was 25 and went to the uh it was 1996 the following year was a big year because it was the olympic year and there was a lot of um the qualification for the great britain team rested on the road team qualifying we had to finish um at least one rider in the top 30 countries um, basically, it was a weird kind of um, way of, of qualifying for the Olympic Games. But because of that, 
there was a, a little bit more money thrown at the preparation and, and the kind of the slight complicating factor was that the world championships that year in 1995 were held at altitude in Colombia. So we had to do altitude training. Oh. So, um, so British cycling said, this is what you pick for the world, but this is what we need you to do. We need you to go to, to America for two weeks. Um, and then Colombia for two weeks with the final weekend being the race. So essentially a month off work. So I spoke to my, I spoke to Marks and Spencers and said, look, I've been picked. They already knew I'd done the Olympics and stuff while I was still working part-time in the winter for them. Yeah. And they said, just go for it. But you had to take it unpaid. So oh, I sacrificed, yeah, a month's pay. Um, and at that point, there was no lottery funding or anything like that. Um, I think I actually got a Sport England grant for about two grand for the year. So again, not, not a lot of money at all. No. Uh, but, but something. Um, so I went, went to America with the lads and the team. Um, I had a brilliant time and I was in the form of my life. I took it very, very seriously. Um, I, I kind of ate, I mean, I, I've always had the ability to focus for certain events and obviously look after myself generally to, to ride at a good level. But this was a real big chance for me to ride well on a circuit that I thought I could do really well on. And also the added importance of we needed to have riders that were capable of finishing on the most brutal course in 30 years to qualify GB cycling for the olympic games so wow. that the road cyclists actually qualified a trackies as well i believe it was a bit it was a bit strange um so anyway um cut, cut a long story short i was really going well and i finished seven, uh, eighth in the world championships oh wow in the road race um we got qualified for the olympics the fledgling u.s postal service team the lance armstrong team as was um asked me to ride for them oh wow um, uh, so i kind of agreed in principle that although they didn't sign a contract and they said we'll be in contact and they did get in contact a couple of phone calls um sorting things out and then and then it just went dead the the, the lines of communication went again pre-internet you couldn't email or whatsapp people it was mm. it was basically phone calls and letters that's the way we <laughs> when you look back it's like <laughs> honestly i mean it was normal it was normal but yeah because it it wasn't as if we suddenly had all these mod cons taken away. It was the way it went, but it meant that communication was actually, you know, it wasn't easy. It was a so challenge. Slow. Yeah. So slow and obviously different time zones. And I eventually found out that the guy that had wanted me to ride for them, a, a, fam- a very famous coach uh, called Eddie Borshevitz had, had been, um, had left the team and they'd got a new general manager who had diff- a different thought on who they wanted. They wanted more American riders in the team rather oh. than Brit. So back to square one again. So I was pretty devastated um so but still rode in 96 got picked for the, the elite world championships rode that still was riding well 97 very bad year financially for 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 cycling in general although i was still riding well i took up mountain biking for six months um 98 came i there was a new the, the scene started to get a bit better domestically and uh, so i rode for a team called harrods and um again ended up winning the British road race championships, which was a big, obviously very big win. Um, so I was British champion. Um, and there was another team at the time called Linda McCartney that were a very small squad, but with big aspirations. Um, but I kept riding for, for the Harrods in 1999 as British champion was basically the number one ranked rider in the UK. Wow. Th- then my team folded uh, <laughs> midway through the year. And I guest rode for the Linda McCartney team and rode, very well it impressed them enough sean yates was the manager to get a deal with them for 2000 which meant that i left my job at marks and spencers basically and finally 
at the age of uh, 30. You got there. <laughs> got there. So that's taken us 17 minutes to get to that point. So finally, you, you, you probably want to cut that out. But anyway, so finally, at the age of 30, uh, I got the pro contract and I could ride full time. And, uh, wow. and, and then we had this, this, yeah, really, really interesting and enjoyable year um, in, in 2000. What a story of ups and downs and nearly getting pro and, and just having it snatched away from you at the last second. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of offs as well. And there was, a, I mean, my, my kind of story, I could dip in and out of various bits and expand on elements of that story. And it would take a long time. There's definitely a book. I mean, <laughs> only, and we only got to the point to 20 years ago. So, yeah. um, uh, and then the, had a good had a, an opportunity then we realized that um you know the team was good it was a small team we were mm. like I, I guess we well not guess we were the equivalent of a pro conti team so kind of division two okay um but racing racing against all the uh the big teams and we rode the tour down under was our first race and i managed to get eighth overall straight away in that um so that was that was a good result world tour points as it as was back then um that continued. I was fourth overall in the Tour of Langkawi, which came just two days after the race in Australia, uh, and we we and that was another lot of points. So I ended up the end at the end of February, and I did actually print it off for posterity, and I have it somewhere um, <laughs> that I printed off the UCI rankings for February two thousand, and I was seventh ranked in the world. Um, Very cool. Um, obviously, it's only temporary until all the hitters started to ride properly. You know? so, <laughs> so that was my uh, my biggest kind of peak. And then, obviously, later that year, I, I rode the, the Tour de Giro d'Italia for the for the only well, first my first Grand Tour, my only Grand Tour. Um, and then the year ended um, with me crashing and breaking my collarbone. Um, and then, obviously, the team started the following year i had mm. a contract for 20 for 2001 and obviously as as is well documented the team never got off the ground um it forced me to join the police for 12 years um so and then and then do the job i'm doing now the media so um from off the back of the police so uh again that's a kind of potted history yeah. um so that the, the pro I, but I don't regret any of it, really. Uh, I, I regret the feelings at the time that put mm. me and my kind of family at that at that time in a lot of financial difficulty. Um, but the drive that I had um, was on un, un kind of, you know, unswerving really, and and I, I, I kind of had a, a deep belief. I kind of owed it to myself as a kid. I, look, I kept looking back and thinking, what would you say to your sixteen-year-old self if you didn't make it as a pro? Um, yeah, yeah. And that was my little reminder. Um, but it did, did take literally from that moment on outdoors in 2016 to properly being a pro. Although I'd, I'd done, I'd been British champion and done the Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, numerous world championships. I hadn't technically been had a proper pro license, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so at an amateur level, I'd I'd excelled, but finally got it. Yeah, 14 years later. Wow, what a journey! Yeah, it was interesting. It was good. It was a lot of fun. You learn a lot. You, you learn a lot about yourself and, and you go through lots of different experiences. So, mm. um, and, and, and all of it is kind of, you've got a target to, to try and hit. And, you know, if you look at, you know, your journey as a dart and you, it leaves your hand as you throw um, and this gust of wind takes it off and it just goes <laughs> all over the place and takes, you know, an inordinate amount of time to land, not quite in the bullseye, but it, it ends up on the board, but <laughs> it wasn't exactly where I planned it, but at least I got to, uh, I got to riding as a pro anyway. So as a cyclist, uh, a professional cyclist, um, 
there must have been a lot involved day to day training wise. You know, did you have a, a specific diet? Were coaches involved? What What was the average day like for uh, for a professional cyclist? Um, twenty years ago, it's it's. I've got to kind of qualify this with yeah. it's, the, the sport has changed so much. Um, it it's I wouldn't say it's un- unrecognizable, but the way we do things. Um, or did things back then was was very different in relation to training and and even if you go back a little bit further to my amateur days um i didn't have any co there's only one period in my entire career um even when you take the, the the latter part of my career from riding as a pro coming back home and joining the police and then training and, and riding as a back as a semi-pro in the uk for another decade um all of that was done off my own back and there's only one period of time in 1995 where I actually had a coach and that was the GB coach, Dave Smith, who um, set, set a program of training up around the, leading up to the world championships, which worked very well, obviously. Um, so I, there was no coaching, honestly, there was no coaching at all. So if you ever do speak to a, a, a contemporary professional cyclist, you'll be like, Oh my God, this is so different. It's not, it's not to say that coaching wasn't around because yeah. it, because it was, um, but I, I didn't have one, but my dad, I learned a lot from my dad um, so, and, and everything else was experiential. And I, I read a lot and I had conversations with people. Um, obviously there was, although there wasn't, um, the internet wasn't around in, in the nineties, you could still read a lot. So I read a lot of magazines, which had, you know, a coaching column every week. And, um, and, you, and you know, from just going out riding with good riders, you'd ask them what kind of things they did. We we're aware of interval training and stuff like that, sweet spot training. So all the knowledge was there. It was just up to the individual to, to kind of work out what was best for them on a trial and error basis. So basically a typical week when I was a pro to, to answer your question directly mm. um, in the winter, it'd be just a lot of volume because when I was a professional in 2000, I did 90 days racing, uh, give or take. Wow. So there's hardly any room for training. Um, whereas now 90 days would be almost overload. There wouldn't be very many pros now who would do anywhere near 90 days racing. There might be one or two you guys like Thomas de Ghent who ride three grand tours and nothing else really. Um, but um, so a lot, a lot of volume. Um, I, I did ring up Sean Yates and when I, he finally offered me the deal and one went the winter of 1999 and said, Sean, okay, I've got this pro contract. I'm really excited. What do I do? He said, what do you mean? He said, what do you mean? I said, what about training then? He said, well, just, just go out and ride your bike even longer than before. So I said, is that all? He said, yeah. So if you're going to do a four hour ride now do six, if you're going to, if you're going to do three, do four. Um, and he said, be just because so basically that's what I did all through the winter. Um, I would just go on these longer rides than I usually did, but the final hour I would always make very, very intense. Mm. I used to go out with a, a lot of the time with a good buddy of mine who was who was racing in the uk uh, and train and to be fair i used to give him a bit of a kicking actually he's a lovely lad <laughs> but, uh, i used to give him a bit of a kicking but um but that's what i did um so i kind of knew how to ride at that point because i was 30 and i'd already you know been british champion so i knew what was needed i just thought there'd be something else in relation to the next level you know um so i just i i'd added on another kind of 10 or 15% in terms of volume, maybe a mm. bit more, maybe 20% in volume. Um, but you, but so there wasn't really any kind of real science to it. It was just right. I'll do another hour and a half today. And, and the final hour and a half will be harder. Um, just to, 
in my mind, I wanted to replicate what it felt like to, to ride uh, over 160 Ks because most amateur races were capped at 160 roughly. Right. Um, although I'd ridden longer. Uh, so I thought, right, okay, I know what the distances are of these races. I've just got to try and replicate that in training. Um, and did a lot of, did a lot of high end turbo work as well. Um, and, and one thing that I think was a bit, I, I know like I'm a, obviously I do a lot of work for Zwift and I, I, I really am an advocate of, of indoor training. Um, not because I'm, you know, I'm soft and I don't think people should go and ride, ride on the road and experience all the different elements and, and, you know, and experience extreme cold. That's an important factor, but in terms of purity of training and quality time, Mm. um the turbo trainer offers that uh in spades i mean it's far easier i say it's not easier now it's it's mentally more easier when when you have fans you can listen to you know music watch a film or go on swift uh, back then it was literally it was like a dungeon my, my, my <laughs> garage was like a torture chamber because the and and the, and, and the turbo trainer I used to put my bike on was just rusty i painted it several times with hammerite over the years and it was just bits falling off it and um there was a fan at the back uh, that was the resistance was this little fan bits of the plastic were falling off and you'd have thought I just got it out of a skip. Um, <laughs> but um, really, really effective training. And I, I came up with my own routine of, of efforts throughout the week. And I, I would, I would estimate that during the 1990s, I spent a third around a third of my time riding on the turbo trainer um, because it, it really did give me that, although I wasn't ever a sprinter, uh, it, it gave me the ability to, I don't know, to, to ride at or near threshold for a long, long time. And that's what I was very good at riding uh, aerobically. I could, although I wasn't the quickest rider, I could, you know, if you look, I could just keep going at the same speed all day. Uh, yeah. When people were tired, I would just keep going. And that was what, that was where my strength was. Um, so. Uh, you, you said earlier about um, the sports changed a bit. I think, probably 2012 olympics was when cycling blew up for the country i mean after that i think everyone else everyone was out on their bike um, but how did that actually affect the pro scene um i think there's been depending on your age and depending on your experience and awareness of cycling there's been several little crests um, i think the most significant one um i would agree was, was 2012 but there was a mini one in 2000 we got medals then uh, on the track and on the road there was another i mean bradley again and the team pursuit squad won medals in 2004 it was a gradual increasing and ramping up of awareness it wasn't suddenly this tsunami it was it had built over a decade but 2012 was where we really reaped you know there was a it was it was amazing wasn't it, it you know it's um i think i don't think the british success in 2012 affected the global thing at all it was just it affected the sport domestically you know because you had um success across the board on the track and then obviously the road with with bradley wiggins winning the tour de france the previous year mark cavendish being world road race champion um and then obviously um us winning the, the team pursuit on the track um and then bradley winning the gold medal in the olympic games um, it was all centered around a few people but there was there'd already been a build-up to that point um and it, i think it just it's like anything any kind of sport that we have success in um, there's always a bit of a surge, isn't there, on public interest? Definitely. But I, th- but I think it was the beginning of, a, of actually a societal change. I do think, you know, and even now, um, I think when you look back eight years, and I only live around the corner from, I'm, you know, I, I live a 10 minute walk from Hampton Court Palace, where 
you know, Bradley Wiggins was on the start ramp there, mm. and I, and I I pushed him off the ramp. I was oh, wow. I was the, I was the rider that held him up, held up all the time trial time trials. So it was full circle for me, having ridden the Olympics in Barcelona and then got the honour of holding up and and driving the lead car in both the men's and women's road races. So that oh, was wow. lovely. Very Living cool. nearby now is is bonkers. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that it. Um, it piqued something in the public. I think the way that Bradley and, and Mark and, and Bradley as well, just to pick out those two guys as examples, there of course were many others, mm. both won sports personality of the year as well, back to back. So two cyclists winning, winning that and the sight of, and when you think about the iconography of, of cycling, um, we think about the yellow Jersey, we think about the rainbow bands, even more so than the Olympics. In fact, uh, as cyclists, I, I think the rainbow bands are kind of more iconic, although from a public perspective, gold medal means more. But the significance of, of Bradley Wiggins winning the Tour de France, but more significantly going down the Champs-Élysées in the yellow jersey yeah. as the British rider leading out Mark Cavendish in the rainbow jersey and Cavendish then winning yeah. on the Champs-Élysées was an emphatic statement. And I think uh, that uh, um, was a kind of, yeah, that, that was the moment that it kind of started the, the change and we see more and more people out on bikes and it's just continued over the years and there's been a, and that success has continued. It's ebbed and flowed a little bit, but then the, the success of riders like Geraint Thomas, Chris Froome, you know, Adam and Simon Yates, just to name a few, recently Hugh Carthy, you know, um, and of course, Toe Gagan Hart now, uh, again, just naming male cyclists, Lizzie Dignan, of course, world champion as well, 2015, yeah. um, and our continued success on the track. And all the young riders coming through, Tom Pickcock, for example, you know, um, Eleanor Baxter, Zoe Baxter, those kind of riders coming through. Um, we've got this conveyor belt of talent now, um, mm. which has taken um, in terms of, and we've got a lot of people riding bikes. And, and for the first time, we're actually seeing now um, change in relation to the way our cities are operating. You know, a lot more cycle lanes being built, um, a lot more money being thrown at um, um cycling infrastructure um, and once you get that coupled with this all this weird and strange and awful year we've had where people have been forced to get back on on their bikes on the off the back of the momentum of the last few years um i do think that we're in a good place in relation to cycling whether it's you whether you want to aim and be one of the best riders in the world and follow an elite forward slash professional career or you just want to generally get fit and ride to the shops and, and take your kids to school on the back of your bike um, I think we're in a really, really healthy, uh, exciting place. Yeah, certainly. I, I think for for me, watching the Olympics and watching people like uh, Sir Chris Hoy and uh, you know absolutely destroy the competition was incredible, um, mm. and and that sort of really piqued my interest. And then obviously, like I say, the Tour de France, um, Bradley Wiggins and Mark Cavendish, and yeah, it's become it's become really part of our national psyche. I think. Yeah, I think so. I I definitely think after after that, everyone looked at cycling differently particularly my our generation definitely so yeah yeah i mean uh, it, it's lovely to hear you guys um to hear you guys say that um, and i think before you go into the next question there's one little quite a touching thing that happened although i noticed when so that with bradley had just won the um time trial uh, mm. in hampton court as i said and i i was staying before i lived here i was living up north at the time but i, I was staying in um um some some student accommodation with every all the helpers from the from the olympics just down the road but i decided to walk a long way down the river um and i was walking along and i was probably 20 feet away from these two young kids who were probably nine or ten um and they were talking to themselves two or three of them two, three lads one of them was wheeling a bmx the others didn't have bikes 
and they were just and they were talking to each other and I could hear it. It was a really still day. And one of them said, I, I wanna be I want to be Bradley Wiggins when I grow up. And the other one said, no, no, I want to be Mark Cavendish. Yeah. And, um, and they can have a go on your bike. No, I want to. And, and that little conversation, I was like, bloody hell. And it kind of, um, it really touched me. And I think I might have actually welled up. Do you know? And, and that's, that's the kind of impression that, um, yeah. And that's just one little example. Um, yeah. and, and I'm sure yeah, that happened all over the place. And it happens in all sports, not just cycling, but that's why role models are very important. And that's why, success at the highest level is important because it filters down and it might and those lads might might not ever race their bikes to any degree of success but the fact that they like riding their bike to me is is that that's a success straight off the bat yeah definitely absolutely what would be some of the personality traits that you see in yourself and other other peers around you that you think really help a, a pro cyclist thrive um in back to being a, a professional cyclist i think uh you have to have a physiology to unlock, but to unlock the physiology, you have to have the ability to make sacrifices um, in relation to how you conduct yourself and the type of things you do. Um, you have to be very, very selfish. Um, any endurance sport, any, any sport is selfish because whether it's a, an endurance-based sport or more of a skill-based sport, you have to practice and train. Um, and it takes hours and hours, whether you're a, a golfer, whether you're a skateboarder, a BMX rider, or you're a marathon runner, 1500 meter runner, or you're a pro cyclist, you have to do what you need to do to get the job done. And if you've got ambition to be one of the best in the world um, and you have potential, you've got to work at it. Um, some riders are more blessed than others in relation to not having to train so much. Um, but what you don't want to do at the end of your career is look back and think, I didn't ever do my best. I, you know, I wish I'd have done more. So you have to be very, very single-minded and focused and, um, and also be resilient. And you have to have the ability to pick yourself up. If you fail, you have to have the, you know, the psychological and physical resilience to get back from injuries. And uh, this, I mean, there's so many cases of riders coming back from serious injury and doing even better, which is a strange kind of thing, especially when you look at, at, at certain, at certain riders, you think, well, that's a life changing injury and that, that they come back and, um, you know, if they're even better than themselves or, or at least as good as they were. And, and that takes a certain kind of mindset. And I think that's what separates some of the best riders from riders who are just all right. Um, so I think a single-minded vision, selfishness, and the ability to take a lot of punishment, the ability to suffer and hurt yourself is, regardless of the type of cyclist you are, if you're a climber, sprinter, classics rider, whatever, TT specialist, you have to have the ability to really, really suffer um, because that essentially is what cycling is all about. It's a beautiful sport. It's fun. But at, at, when you're riding for victory or riding to do well uh, and get success, it's painful. It's exceptionally painful. <laughs> So I'm not selling it very well here, am I? <laughs> yeah, well, we we actually um I I studied um uh, biology A levels and um, we talked about cyclist training. Funnily enough, yeah. we talked about the uh, Olympic cyclist and they called it sick bucket training. I think where they oh, push yeah, their yeah. bodies to the absolute limit. Um, obviously be sick and then they'd get back on and go again to build up some sort of a lactic acid, uh, you know, barriers or something, but just incredible the way. They yeah, it, it is. It's a thing that uh, I've never had a sick bucket, uh, but I, I know on the, particularly the, um, the track riders. So the team pursuit riders and especially the sprinters. So Chris Hoy, mm. um, the sprinters do a lot of repeated efforts 
to build up resilience. Um, and I know the thinking behind lactic acid has kind of even changed, but basically to ride to exhaustion um, anaerobically, um, whether it's whether it's sprint sessions, intervals, um, you know, ramp tests. Um, yeah, it's co- it's pretty common knowledge that down at the velodrome uh, at Manchester, down in the labs there, there is a sick there's a sick bucket because <laughs> it, 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 what it does when you there's a reaction that is caused when you get to a certain point where your body, I think it's something to do with the spleen oh, right. that causes a reaction. I mean, you guys probably know more than me, but it causes you to, you to retch, and I've experienced that on numerous occasions doing um, doing turbo sessions. Never on the I think it happened at one hill climb championships where I nearly threw up. Wow. But I was obviously racing on an empty stomach anyway, so nothing came out. But I've, I have been sick numerous times on the turbo. It is a thing, and that's actually quite perverse, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, so after you, you've gone into the police, you've done your 12 years police, you're now doing a bit of commentary, a bit of media work. So yep. how's that all working for you? Really, really well. Um, the 12 years in the police, I, I, wouldn't reg- I didn't regret either. And that wasn't something that was ever planned. Um, and I, it was a very, very enjoyable part of my career. It was, uh, as I said, it is one of those periods in your life. I mean, just to put it into perspective before I go into the media bit, um, the pro thing ended, as I said before. The team I had a contract. The team ended. Uh, I ended up with nothing. Sold my bike. Um, ended up on the dole for a week. And that was quite, if you think, signing on at my local dole office in, in Nantwich in Cheshire and then only seven months earlier I was riding the Giro d'Italia on the start line in the Vatican riding with yeah. Pantani and Cipollini um psychologically that was I didn't want to ride my bike you know I was I was just on a real low and also I had to pay the mortgage so that was mm. very very sobering so you've got that experience that disparity between success and failure and feeling like a failure um Worked in the supermarket for a few months. That was sobering as well. Although I'd worked in the supermarket before, I worked at Morrison's filling shelves in the nighttime. It was horrific. And I hadn't been to university. My university had been Paris, where I lived as an amateur professional, an amateur cyclist. So I was like, well, I need to earn a living. Obviously, cycling isn't going to pay me anything. I'm done and dusted with cycling. You know, that will hopefully come back at some point. And it did, racing at kind of semi-pro level in the UK. Uh, and my friend said, um, what did you join the police? I was like, oh, I might, I might as well. So literally six months later, I, did, I, I, was, a, I was a copper. And um, then as I went through the police, um, I ended up settling in a, in a unit which was specialised in um, domestic violence and investigating historical child abuse allegations. So it's very, very specialist. And, commun- and, and um, I'm telling you about this because of what the police taught me. And it was, mm. you know, how important communication is. Well, not how important communication is so much, because obviously it is important especially if you do certain jobs where you need to um have the element of trust and empathy mm. um but it really taught me a lot without really knowing it and uh, there was i i kind of discovered a part of myself that i didn't really know i had which i which was very rewarding in a very very dark environment you know i met a lot of wonderful people in the cops met a lot of dark people as well some very dangerous people but and some vulnerable people but that helped shape what i do today so when I finally left the police to pursue what I'm doing now, um, it was a mix of things. It was, I sent my CV to Eurosport, got a couple of gigs from them. And then I, I worked for Global Cycling Network in the, in the early days. I think they'd only been going for about six months. So I was one of the few, me and Dan Lloyd, Tom Last, Simon were the first uh, presenters. And, and I had a whale of a time working for those guys and, and was an, obviously an important integral part of the channel. And it was, it was a blast. And I think we were actually trailblazers for for, di- for 
digital con- cycling digital content back then mm. um set the bar pretty high had fun doing it but it happened very organically um and became very successful and i was always commentating alongside and and eventually my, my time at gcn came to an end um again with no regrets wonderful bunch wonderful bunch of people only fun memories and when i talk about it i always smile um <laughs> but i decided to take the next deck and, and focus more on commentating more on um making different sorts of digital content and also hosting live events. Um, and, and that's, and it's constantly evolving. Um, so commentating, I find really rewarding because I love cycling that much. What I, my kind of aim when I'm uh, commentating on a bike race is to convey how bloody great it is. Even if a, one particular race might be a bit dull, for example, you know, you take some stages in grand tours um, can be a little bit dull at times. Um, mm-hmm. So that's when your art that's when the ability to keep talking whilst not much is happening and <laughs> keep the audience entertained is really is key. Yeah. Um, so it's not just, I mean, a particularly exciting bike race where you'd commentate play by play, which is basically me conveying on the screen what is happening and, and deconstructing it, explaining it, giving you the whys and the reasons and, and adding a bit of drama to it as well, just to amplify what's going on. That's my job. But then on days when there's not a lot going on, um, you kind of draw other experiences and you, and you know, you, you might want to talk a little bit about the, the area that the, the race is passing through. And it always makes me smile when people say, why are you talking about the food? Why are you talking about, you know, architecture? It's like, because most bike races, pretty much all of them, the funding comes from tourist boards, um, okay. race organizers, the, the, the way they generate revenue apart from advertising and TV revenue. Uh, well, there isn't much of that um, is, a host town and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a finish town and also the region that the race passes through. That's who pay for the right for the race to pass through to, to showcase where they are. So that's why quite often we give you all this detail about, about, about the churches or the, or the kind of the castles that are passing through the rivers, the mountain ranges. It's all to showcase um, areas in the world that, in they that particular area would want to attract tourists to. So um, it's multi-layered really, but um it's a it's a it's i feel very very privileged to be able to do it um and i'm i'm constantly learning each each race that i commentate on i make mistakes and i kind of want to improve but but primarily i want to entertain people and that's why i like doing stuff like podcasts that's why on my social media i'm a bit i act like a bit of a fool sometimes (laughs) um because life's too short i've also done some i've had a lot of personal highs and lows in my career I've also mm. worked in, in an area in the police where life's dark permanently for a lot of people. So I just want to sh- shine a little bit of a light on people's lives. So um, that's why there's a, I don't take myself too seriously, although I can take <laughs> myself very, very seriously. Most of the time, it's just this is what I do. It's primarily all around cycling, although I'm interested in other things as well, of course. But um, it's conveying a sense of fun and trying to, to share and, and convey to people that, you know, if, if you're not a cyclist, um, you should be, even if it's just kind of riding to work one day or something yeah. like that. And it, it, it's a beautiful sport, a liberating sport, a freeing sport, uh, forward slash pursuit. But yeah, it's uh, communicating and yeah. talking to people is, is what I do best. I, I think that uh, going back to what you said about 
commentators and you know chatting in and around what's going on really reminds me of um watching the cricket you know if there's a five-day test and you know some one day might be a bit boring they've got to keep your attention and they can talk about all sorts of stuff (laughs) on the cricket that has no no meaning to anyone but just keeps you entertained i think it must be a really difficult skill to uh to develop i think yeah i think it's um it's akin to the art of conversation um so and that's why commentary teams are really important and i know um you know i'm not a big cricket fan but i'm aware of how uh, and, and the analogy is used we kind of often draw from that in the way that we've been commentating on the grand tours uh, over the last few years it's almost like test match special where there's a rotor where you swap around and keep it fresh um because you you kind of need fresh voices in there sometimes you need to bounce different ideas off and and you need to have a conversation that's uh, stimulating and 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 evolving and, and 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 not flat and you need to have the ability to as a, as a commentator primarily as a lead commentator you, you need to be able to have different inflection and intonation and different pitch and different color in in your voice and, and the range and that's why i kind of ebb and flow and then this, you get this big crescendo myself you know carlton kirby rob hatch we all have our own different styles but essentially it ends in this crescendo trying to draw the audience into this this kind of level of excitement and um and, and when you look at a race narrative it's all about the finish line essentially lots happen lot does happen beforehand but when you look at generally the way that an audience will watch a bike race in terms of numbers as we head towards the end of the race you get more and more people tuning in generally it's your purists your, your kind of real cycling eats if we're on all day we'll actually switch the telly on straight away from the start to watch the flag drop but the vast majority of people will tune in for the last 10 15 k's um so that's why you might hear us occasionally like every like 20 minutes recapping what's gone on um telling you again who's in the breakaway we do that as a device to make sure that anybody's joining us late has got a sense of what the narrative is so it's all about whatever point you drop into the commentary understanding what's going on telling a story and reminding people but so there's a real art to combining that with you know, a freewheeling conversation that's sometimes fun, sometimes serious. You've got to get, you've got to have a really good sense of what's going on in the cycling world as well. So we're constantly researching uh, right up to the very minute we go on air. We're all of us, you know, that prep time before we commentate is around two hours uh, when we have to actually go on, on set or to the studio. And sometimes we're going longer than that. If it's a big race, I'll go in probably three hours before. Um, you've done your prep at home, obviously through the week, but then you get your paperwork out you're studying social media news outlets for the latest bit of news. Cause as we know, you know, if you're not up to date with the news um, because it's happens, it changes so quickly. You kind of old, you kind of, you can be found out, can't you? You know, yeah. it's like, oh, we didn't know that, that he transferred <laughs> to that team. So we have to be on it all the time. And as a consequence, I follow hundreds of bike riders, uh, pretty much all of the men's and women's teams um, just to, and they give you, and because teams now, um, make their own digital content there's a wealth of information and stuff out there that you've got to keep keep abreast on if you're if you, you know, if you're going to be worth your salt as a as a commentator um you're never going to know everything but as long as you've got a pretty good handle on what's been going on up to the very moment the race has started yeah. then you need to be armed with that as you go into commentary and I guess what has been the biggest positive or opportunity you've had out of this of this career as a professional cyclist and uh, and now doing your commentary and and that kind of cycling world. 
Um, sorry, can you just... I, I, I just had a call coming through that I had to cancel. Okay. So can you just repeat that one? Sorry, yes, I have to turn my phone off. So no again. worries. So what's the biggest um, positive you've, you've had out of this professional cycling career and now mm. the commentary, you know, the biggest opportunity or positive you, you've got from it? I think it's um, knowing, you know, reason... It's, it's, I think it's the fact that people like what I do. I mean, that sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? But yeah, it's, quite it's, cool. it's kind of quite, not redemptive. It's kind of th- when somebody takes the time, like, like you guys. I mean, it, 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 you, you've contacted me. I know it's taken a while, so apologies. But you've contacted <laughs> me because you want to hear what I've got to say about this particular, about my, you know, the industry I work in. Mm. And that's a compliment. And, and, and I, I need to thank you for that for taking the time. And then I think about <clears throat> those kind of situations where people ask me to do this or do that, or, or, or increasingly now it's brands coming to me and say, can you make a bit of content for us? Because you, the way you, you kind of do that sort of thing is very unusual, um, but it's effective. And it's, and that's like, Oh, right. Okay. Cause I think a little bit differently when I'm, when I make advertorials or whatever, when I promote brands and, but primarily I make, I seem to be able to make people smile. Um, I think I'm the kind of person that you could um, bump into in the street and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. Um, and and I've, I guess I'm kind of n- naturally like this, but my ability to communicate has been, I'm 50 and I'm old, you know, I've been around a lot. So <laughs> I've, ha- I've kind of honed this ability over a long, long time. But fundamentally, I, I, I go back to when I was a kid approaching professional cyclists at the time who are my kind of heroes. Um, and when they took the time to acknowledge me, sign an autograph you know you know back then it was i remember meeting sean yates when i was 15 in a hotel on the milk race um my dad took me to this bar where there was going to be some riders he said oh you can meet sean yates go and have a word with him and i had my cycling weekly tapped him on the shoulder or tapped him on the back because i was only tiny uh he turned around and said oh, hey up, mate how you doing and he signed you know took the it's taking the time to acknowledge the people that that kind of support you really um i think that's what i get the most kind of um pleasure from um and also that i'm now you know 10 years 12 years after my kind of racing career and still working in the industry that i love yeah and 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 i'm able to make videos go to bike races talk about it celebrate the sport with like-minded people um and when people say that i'm doing that well or when they say you know, like some of the GCN stuff and the Sigma Sports stuff that I've done. Oh, I, you know, I watched that video and I bought that bit of kit. Or, you know, I've been watching your training videos or when you did this and that, and that's inspired me to ride my bike. And I get emails from people all over the world and, and the messages on Instagram and wherever um, to that effect. And that is just, it's just brilliant. It's just, yeah. uh, that, that's the coolest thing. I think it's affecting, a t- not, not affecting change, but, um, and not necessarily inspiring people, but it's, getting a reaction knowing you're having an effect on someone exactly a positive Positive, reaction from people yeah who take the time to contact me and say thank you that's like bloody hell that's why i'm doing this absolutely simple as that and on the flip side of that what would be some of the the less favorable or negative aspects of this industry i don't think that's a really really good question obviously the sport uh in the past as it as it, with any sport has had a, you know it's had a dark past i guess i mean i think the only kind of problematic side to to cycling um and the industry is really just um the kind of the the, the doping history i guess is really problematic 
although I think we're in a far better place. That's something that is, is, is sad, um, but that's been a problem in all sport. And, and unfortunately, um, there are a lot of sports that have got a lot more money than cycling who are able to cover a lot of things up. And let's be really, really honest about it. But cycling has been exposed um, for what it was back then. Um, it doesn't make me not, not love cycling. It just, it just fills me with relief that that actually that chapter, I think wouldn't say it's quite closed because there's always going to be people in life who cheat. Um, but I think we're, we're in a, a far better place now. I think that's, that's one thing that obviously raises its head every now and again, which is, which isn't good to be, um, which isn't good at all. Um, but thankfully I think we've got governance in place to, to address that and not just governance, but I think the attitude, and the ideology now in place with young riders um, is completely different than it was um, 20, 30 years ago. So, um, but in terms of other negatives, um, I don't know. I think social media sometimes can be really polarizing. I think I, I do enjoy social media, but I don't really get involved in any kind of debate. I think um, some, some people get a bit too angry for my liking on social media. And I think there's a lot of better really? things people could be doing with their time. And I think that, and I, I guess the only negative thing, that needs a lot of work, I think, is attitudes out on the road. I think that's always problematic. Um, you know, motorist v cyclist kind of thing. That that's um, and I'm a motorist and a cyclist, and I know that you guys are as well. Yeah. So, you know, without being too cheesy, why can't we all get along and and create a you know a, a, a kind of um, a discourse that benefits us both? <laughs> so that that's. But apart from that, I'm really having to think hard about what's bad about cycling and, and the industry. And I think, um, yeah, I think we need to. A lot more uh, to be a lot more progressive and and in uh, getting uh, people of color on bikes as well, you know, um, which is happening. Which you can see that that's changing. I think we've been. Um, I don't think we've actually positively discriminated in the past. I just think we've been lazy and and we haven't realised that uh, by not thinking about other about getting people of uh, people of color involved in the sport. Um, I think. By, by that omission, we've, we've actually let ourselves down. So thankfully that's changing as well. I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I think that's the only other kind of negative, really. Mm. And, 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 and promoting women in cycling as well and women in sport in general. Mm. Uh, that's been poorly done. I think there's a lot of work to be doing, but I think we're heading in the right direction. It's just we need people to take a bit more of a, of a risk and a bit more of a gamble and willing to invest to help accelerate that. But uh, aside from that, I, I, I love what I do. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, I want to get out of bed every day and have an agenda of pretty much, you know, uh, of, of doing things that I love. And in a really, in an increasingly creative way, um, I, I feel I'm pretty blessed, actually. Yeah. So we like to talk about, um, for anybody listening and thinking, you know, oh, actually, yeah, I'd like to be a professional cyclist. And I'm sure this will have changed since, since your days. But how do cyclists go about actually earning their, um, their, their crust, if you like? Yeah, so is it, it sponsorship? Is it actually getting a professional contract? Is it brand money? How does it all work? Um, to put it simply, because there's various kind of tiers, especially these days. I mean, you've, there's a lot of... Um, um, people earning a little bit of money through influencing, you know, on YouTube channels and stuff like that. But it's not a lot of money unless you're, you know, you've got a big, big, big following. But uh, to, to directly answer your question in relation to becoming a professional cyclist, um, there are three tiers, basically, and they are continental, pro-continental and world tour. I think that um, they've changed the name slightly. Um, but there's basically three divisions of a professional cyclist. Uh, in women's in women's cycling, there are two tiers. 
um, like, um, UCI registered teams and then world teams. And then like, below that, there's amateur teams. But essentially, at professional level for women, there's two tiers. And with men, there are three tiers of the sport. Um, and basically, it's um, first off, if, you, if you're interested in, in, in bike racing, um, pop online first and search out cycling clubs in my area that's the first thing that i would advise you to do um get yourself a bike um you don't need to spend an inordinate amount of money on your bike but but nowadays if you're getting a bike for the first time be prepared to wait a little while because there's so many people wanting bikes the industry can't keep up which is good um so bear that in mind but if you've already got a bike and you fancy racing go online or to the british cycling website and look up cycling clubs in my area join a club or if you even if you don't want to join most clubs now will have and there are a lot more clubs now and there's a lot of there are a lot of new clubs that think a little bit differently a little bit more dynamic than some of the older clubs but they're in every area in the uk i mean there are hundreds and hundreds of clubs so you'll have one quite nearby wherever you live i guarantee it is go out on a ride with them and see what kind of uh, and just see what kind of riding you you kind of like i mean because there's so many different avenues to pursue there's road riding of course mountain biking BMX, gravel riding, cyclocross, track, you know, there are so many different elements to it. Um, go, go to a club, um, see what they offer, and they will basically set you on a path. And there's, there's lots of re- regional racing um, on closed circuits. You can have a drop-in session at a local track, although there obviously there's there are a finite number of tracks. There's obviously London, there's the kind of Wales, there's Derby. And there's, there's tracks in Scotland now, and of course Manchester. So there's a relatively even spread of high quality tracks to go and do drop-in sessions to get the experience of what it's like to ride in a velodrome. And then there's racing across the board at every level. Um, from and then as you progress and you get good, um, you'll soon be noticed. You'll notice it yourself. You know, you might then get involved with a bit of a coach to help you on. Um, and once you get to to racing well at a national level, you might get invited to join a racing team. Um, and you might get a little bit of sponsorship. You might get a few hundred quid to help towards your expenses. You might get given a bike and some kits, which helps, you know, um, helps with the expense of the sport. And the, and the more you progress, the more you'll get noticed, basically, uh, and you'll become aware. You'll be embedded within the scene, and then you'll you'll know the kind of path to get to turn pro. And ultimately, if you're, let's say, for example, you you're excelling at road racing, uh, and you might get picked up and you're winning at national international level, you're going abroad for the national team or you're, you're, you're picking up good results in an amateur team. The way it normally happens is that a professional team will approach you and offer your contract uh, generally as a younger rider. Um, and you, you then under contract to that particular team and you get, you get um, one year, two year, three year, four year contract with that particular team. Um, and then you just ride for that, for that particular squad and get paid paid every month um that's a really over oversimplified way of doing it Mm. um way of looking at it but it's just it's baby steps first um and then it will progress and it will all kind of fall into place but but basically yeah there's three divisions the top division is where you see Geraint thomas and chris Froome racing of course yeah um in the tour de france but yeah you, you you're generally invited to to ride for a team um and you sign a contract for one or two or a couple of years and then you do the race program that that team does having um been in the industry in different aspects as well what would be something that's uh not in the job description that you never expected to have to deal with that's a good question um it's never in the job description although you know once you get to, to turn pro you kind of you've obviously taken a few bumps on the way you you know you know what it's you know what it takes to be successful 
you've also felt um, what it's like to fail and the lows and how to cope with it. But um, I think the pressure is actually something that you forget about because as an amateur, there's a, there's enough pressure. There's a lot of pressure anyway you, that you put on yourself, but as you, as a pro, that's your living. Uh, that's your job. So that's, you, you know, and, and when I was a professional, I wasn't earning a lot of money, but it was that money went to pay my mortgage and, you know, and, uh, and the vast majority of professional riders don't aren't millionaires that they're, they're earning a pretty reason, a kind of modest to reasonable living. Um, uh, and that's not to say it's not a profession. I would advise people to, to go, go down, but it's hard. Um, but once you get to a certain point, you know, you can earn a reasonable living. Mm. So I'm not trying to deter people, but I think it's the pressure of failure. And, and because it's not a job for life, you have to perform, whether it's race wins or performing your role for the team. Um, you can wake up, second part of the season for me, I used to wake up nervous every day thinking I've got, I've got to do my job because I want a contract for the following year. And a lot of riders face that. It's this perpetual fear of failure and the perpetual fear of what next. And I think a lot of riders are ill-prepared for what happens after cycling because let's face it, even when you quit cycling as a, as a 35 year old um, or 30 year old, you're still young. You know, mm. you've got the rest of your life in front of you. So I think it's the fear of the unknown wanting to succeed as a cyclist and the pressure that's on you to, to put food on the table. That's what nobody really kind of talks about until you experience it. And that's quite hard. Um, and it's the way you deal with that pressure, that pressure you can either take and let it and, and let it drive you or you, you can let it beat you down. Um, and it can only go two ways or one of two ways. And, uh, would you still go into the industry knowing everything you know now? Um, I wouldn't want to, do, I'll be honest with that. I wouldn't want to do it again because it was so hard and I had such a, <laughs> it took me such a long bloody time. I'm actually pretty happy where I am now. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of people say, Oh, would you, would you turn the clock back? And there's, and do you have any regrets? And the, the answer is no. Um, because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it hadn't been for the path that I take. And there's no way you know, even when I was in mid- midway through the the nineties or midway through doing the police that I'd be, I could have foresaw that I was working in TV and, and media now. I, I, and I'm, I really do enjoy what I do, but I don't take it for granted. And again, it is a really unusual job. I mean, I don't know what I'll be doing you know, at the back end of next year or the year after. Hopefully I'll be doing something similar. Um, so yeah, sometimes I, I kind of, I'm watching the tour uh, or I'm watching a race that I'm not commentating on and, you know, I, I like, I used to love racing in the sunny weather in the mountains. I think, Oh, wouldn't it be lovely to get back and do a bit of racing. And then I realize I'd soon come back down to earth when I get on Zwift and think, Oh, this, this is painful. <laughs> so I like, I like riding now under my own terms and I don't have any regrets at all. And I've got no aspirations now to kind of ever, ever race again, but I do, I'm still competitive. I still like to keep fit. Um, but no, my racing days are done. That chapter's closed but I'm, I'm kind of using my experiences during that time to kind of, you know, give, give some kind of depth to, to my commentary and, and what I do in media now. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to chat with you this morning. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. No worries at all. And um, thanks for asking me. Um, and again, sorry for bailing first time around, but it's been, it's been really nice. And, and um, yeah, thanks for listening to me. Pleasure. Well, thank you. And where can people find you on uh, social media? Um, I'm on Twitter at real Stevens with a PH uh, and the same on Instagram at real Stevens um, and Sigma sports YouTube channel is where most of my content goes as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. Thanks, nice man. one. Thanks a lot guys.